It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Ladies and gentlemen, this morning, Mr. Kevin Sheedy. Kevin, welcome to the show. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. How are you? No, very good. I'm, um, you know, it's uh, been a very different year, but a, but an exciting, challenging year for people like uh, myself. But uh, hopefully, um, you know, uh, my, my life's experiences get you through it all. And um, most of my life, I'm always thinking positive, so I have no no problem with the COVID-19 from that point of view, a mental point of view I'm talking about. Um, obviously, feel very sorry for the people that have lost their lives and their families. But in general, um, no, I'm going okay. Going okay. Well, you look okay. You look healthy. You look like you got some 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 colour in your skin. Looks like you've been out and about doing a bit of gardening by the sounds. I'm a gardener, yes, and um, that's been a blessing in disguise. You know, I sort of grew up in the botanic gardens in Melbourne, so um, I lived in that area. So. Between Faulkner Park and the Botanic Gardens was um, probably uh, just a home base for us kids, you know, when we, I'm one of the seven kids and, um, you know, we had a very small house in the 50s and 60s, so we, we got out there and um, had a bit of fun. Well, Opens. well, I must say, I live in uh, South Bank, Kevin, and, and the Botanical Gardens is my favourite place in the whole world as well, and we can't get in there at the moment. Uh, which makes me really appreciate it when we do. So I'm looking forward to that reopening. Well, a lot of people walk around it, don't go in it. They're like a goat track, so they need to get alive, some of them. Well, they're trying to keep themselves fit, but don't forget the mental freshness and vibrance of plants and scent, you know. So I've always felt that, um, you know, it's one of, it's Melbourne. Melbourne's got three great properties. Uh, obviously, um, that Botanic Gardens. I think the Shrine as a historical property, and the MCG. Yeah, the MCG. I think is an incredible sort of meeting place for us. You know, Victorians, Melbournians in particular, and all Australians when they come to watch some of the internationals and that whole sort of valley of of uh, the Arrow River there with all the tennis stadiums and rugby and soccer. We've got the lot. So it's a great area. Yeah, it's fantastic. I'm actually. Uh, from New Zealand, Kevin. I've been here for half my life now, and far, my father's from Melbourne, and I it's it's become my adopted home. I'm a naturalised citizen, and uh, regarding the tan, I actually have at the moment on Strava the record uh, third fastest downhill Anderson Street 400 metre stretch uh, that nearly set my feet on fire <laughs> I did earlier in the year. So there's a, a challenge for anyone listening that's attacking the tan anytime recently. Well, when I played at Richmond, we we trained that tan all the time. And then when I went to Western, I used to bring the bombers over to the other side of Melbourne to make sure that we were going to not uh, miss 
the um, the treasures of what that um, tan run does and the build up and the hill running and and um, I mean I remember one stage we carried a lot logs around the tan you know when I coached it in the early days just to I said had had probably missed a, a a pain threshold so we did a lot of different things got criticised for it and all that sort of stuff but anyway we tried things a lot different than what we normally would in football back when uh, men were men. <laughs> I don't know what men are, but you know, <laughs> the, uh, you know we we go okay. Yeah, the girls are probably a bit smarter, but we do a little bit more of the physical work. Well, the, the women are not to be underestimated around the town. My uh, fiance can power up that hill like a billy goat. She's ex- quite extraordinary. So, uh, and there's a really Plus, beautiful, beautiful some smell. Of greatest, Sorry? Some of the greatest athletes I've ever seen are women athletes. You know, in my lifetime, and I grew up in the. I was about 10 years of age in the 56 Olympics and, um, you know, to see Betty Cuthbert and these girls run out and win three gold medals, you know. We had had about nine and a half million people, I think maybe 10 million people in Australia at that time. And, you know, we punched very well in the sporting arena for a country of now 25 million. We always seem to be up somewhere in the top 10. So it's an amazing effort by a very small country's population. Well, who are some of your other favourite female athletes that come to mind? Oh, Yvonne Gulagong, I thought she was sensational. You know, to, to, to see an Aboriginal girl just find to get a tennis racket and come from nowhere out the you know country New South Wales and and get to the stage in um, you know the, the English Open tennis. Like when you when you see that happen, that's a magnificent achievement. And of course, um, when you look at uh, Jessica Watson, I think she's been incredible to sail around the world at fifteen. I mean, they're very courageous, you know. I mean, I talk about, you know, men talking about how tough they are in footy fields, but I felt that was one of the most courageous efforts I've ever seen from a, an Australian teenager, 15, 16, unbelievable. So that's that's raw courage in itself and um, an amazing confidence in one's ability at that age, no matter what you're talking about, whether it be, you know, I mean, we, we talk about, Columbus sailing, you know, from Europe into the East Indies and and, and here is in, in the Asian seas. You know, we're talking about Columbus. You know, it's a long time ago. But, I mean, uh, this girl sailed around the world 15. So I don't know whether she'll get the credit and praise that that young woman should get from world people. 15. Well, even if it's not apparent straight away, I think what that'll probably teach her, having experienced not that but some other major challenges physically that sort of put me out of my comfort zone more than I ever thought, is that it'll teach her to, to believe that she can do anything. And I think then that might have an impact further down her life, you know, and she will yeah. inspire inadvertently, you know, a whole race of people. Um, the, and the the affinity for the Indigenous uh, people, Kevin, where did where did that come from, do you know? From myself' point of view, yeah, yeah. My, um, oh, look, I well, I like people for a start, and you know, I mean, I go, I've been around the world a fair bit and had a look around, and you know, but I early days, I mean, I didn't know in, about Aboriginal people when I was a kid because there was no where I grew up in South Yarra, <laughs> and um, and that, well, I wasn't, you know, I mean, and uh, and I think back, I mean, there's only a half a million Indigenous people alive now after forty plus thousand years, which is just a shame, but. You know, so I think that um, I've always wanted to look at the history of Australia and how it was formed and what happened and 
And then along the way, I thought, well, yeah, I mean, these guys have been smashed, you know, by obviously, you know, the colonisation of Australia. Uh, no different than the, um, you know, the Indian nations of America when, you know, the white people come in, whether it was the French or the English or the British or whatever. So when I finally got to meet them, I, I really liked them, you know. I, I thought, wow, you know, gee, I went to Darwin when I was in my very early uh, 20s and um, met some beautiful Indigenous people there and then come back and I thought, well, if I ever ever, ever get to coach a team one day and, and I didn't think I'd be coaching Essendon for that long, you know, but let alone Essendon or any AFL or VFL Victorian team, um, I just thought I'd bring the team up. I could have been a country team. We could have been coaching in South Australia or whatever. So I always, I promised them I'd bring bring my team up. Well, it happened to be Essendon in the end, so I couldn't, it was a bit bigger than what I thought. But, um, and I'm talking 1970s, you know, very early. Good people. Yeah, well, the uh, like when you compare them to the New Zealand Maori, for example, we've had some. Uh, we've had one particular uh, guest on recently, uh, Nahihi Aotearoa Boudoir, who's got the full face muku and obviously very entrenched in, in the culture of New Zealand, and spoke about that as well. And the the New Zealand Maoris um, maybe didn't put up with as much shit when the white man arrived, and that sort of helped them. Um, I think probably get get more back from the government and the you know they're a lot more seem to be a lot more well respected in New Zealand than say the the Aboriginal uh, indigenous population over here um, just an observational point of view yeah well I, you know I mean they had a few wars against the other islanders didn't they <laughs> well they they weren't actually no. the original settlers they had the Moriori's uh, who then the Maoris arrived and ate them yeah so uh, it's a good way to get rid of them Get rid of the people that are there. A bit of cannibalism around the world that was happening in a lot of different parts of the world in the early centuries. I hear, but um, look, you know, obviously civilizations changed since, and um, you know, I've been involved in uh, lots of different areas, and I'm learning still. You know, I'm, I'm in my early seventies, and I'm enjoying that. You know, and I believe you're largely responsible for the inspiration for the Dream Night at the G or Dream Time. Yep. Well, I mean, to me, that was um, important. I'm working on a pro couple of projects now that um, we need to look at. And uh, so when I hang up from here and um, get off uh, you know, our little session, I, I'll be looking at different areas of the game that I'm involved in, obviously, it's AFL, and uh, what we can do better and smarter. And... Um, and maybe an Aboriginal boy might uh, get the benefits of that. We don't know. It'll be a great debate. But, um, you know, this is a situation where you, you say to yourself, well, what can we do and what should we do that we're not doing? And sometimes it's um, a lot easier than what you think. And all you got to do is pursue it and then have the patience and get the people on side to roll with that. Now, that can be difficult. And sometimes, I mean, the Anzac Day was probably one of the easiest days to get when I went and saw the RSL. And Bruce Ruxton loved the idea. And, of course, we now have a game called um, uh, the Celebration of Anzacs, Australian-New Zealand Army Corps, so it's a nation of uh, New Zealand and um, Australia in the First World War. And uh, just, you know, recently, obviously, um, you know, when you think we could do it better, um, and I tried to do that. I tried to get a game between New Guinea and New Zealand before Collingwood and Essendon on the same day. And uh, I just couldn't get that time slot. 
I said, make it an hour game. I don't give a damn. But, you know, we, we know that both these countries deserve to be on the Anzac stage here in Melbourne. Now, we can keep re-looking at that because sometimes you've just got to be ready to switch on and make sure you can do that. Now, there'd be nothing better than having uh, New Zealand play uh, New Guinea in AFL on Anzac Day ahead of the Collingwood um, and Essendon game. So... It's, to me, it's a bit of theatre and a bit of history, and I think that you know, if you can create opportunities and games out there that can make people just think about their life and who actually gave their lives up to give us the one we've got now, you know, sort of thing. So, and obviously, right now we've got our medical staff over here have been incredible in this COVID nineteen, putting themselves in very dangerous situations. So I look at all that, and I think, well, you know, we've got to look at that when we get back to normality and see that you know maybe we can have a game for. Uh, a fantastic medical staff of Australia. Sounds like a great initiative, Kevin. Look, looking forward to that myself. Getting uh, being able to support a New Zealand side in the in some kind of AFL be exciting. Um, after being a long-suffering Melbourne supporter for seventeen years, <laughs> you just picked the wrong club, mate. <laughs> I got given the wrong club. <laughs> but uh, I've still you staff. Get, have, you, have you? Are you still friends with that person, or is your in-laws? Or what? oh, it's Out sketchy. Yeah, it's a it's, it's a very sketchy relationship. But once they come good, I've still got my scarf, and um, it's it's a law of numbers. I think they'll eventually come around. So uh, long time, nineteen sixty four. Well, I even uh, you weren't even thought of. No, I wasn't even thought of. But I I thought when I arrived in Melbourne, I better do the right thing and well ensconce myself in the game. So I actually played two seasons in the back pocket for the Bling Cobras. So uh, yeah. In the D four comp, and I kicked two behind in two years. I don't know how, uh, but um, even back pockets can kick a few goals by the sounds of things. You can. Yeah. It's always about a <laughs> little bit of looseness getting away from your man. And because the Rovers, you know, they don't think that back pockets have the right to go down past the midfield and have a shot. That, you'll catch them unawares like that. And, and what about your true love that no one really knows, Kevin? What about cricket? What about your career with cricket and nearly making the Australian side, being bumped off by Jim Higgs? Well, um, that was a fun time. But, uh, look, I uh, love I love my career. I love Richie Benno. I thought Benno was a fantastic leader for Australia when I was a kid. He and, um, you know, Bill Laurie and uh, Neil Harvey, these sorts of guys, uh, Alan Connolly, we had a wonderful test side in those days, and uh, Wally Grout. He's a wicketkeeper from Queensland in the in the Shields, and then he went into the Australian Test Arena, and it was a fantastic wicketkeeper from uh, Queensland. But look, you know, uh, I picked football because the the uh, odds were on my side. You know, if you if you're only a leg spinner, we'll only pick one. And uh, you know, in Melbourne, they they picked 148, no, 168 players by height in the 12 teams, so 14 people. Uh, about 14 people my height in the 12 teams in Melbourne, so 12, 14, 168. So I went with my maths. It's the only time I was ever any good at maths. <laughs> it's a really strategic uh, plan. I never would have thought well, of that. That's okay. Well, I mean, I try to think, as I said, think of things you're not thinking of and you never know what you can do. But um, anyway, so that was a great learning experience on mathematics and as soon as you get up and you have a career and you move into coaching and then all of a sudden they change the mathematics on you called uh, AFL draft and trade. So you move your mathematics of that over into algebra. 
you know, how to swap a player for two draft picks or, you know, a couple of boxes in the draft or pick 30 and pick 50 and or take the body you see. So there's a lot of differences that you can relate back to your early education and, and that's why I like it. Well, and as been, simple as that. It is as simple as that. But you've been, you've been quoted as uh, saying that you're a, a futurist thinker. What are some of the, the, the things on the horizon for Kevin Sheedy in the next five or ten years? Well, right now I'm writing the rules for, for 2030. What I'd like to see, probably after I'm not here, for my grandkids to watch a game that I think's just gone into a little bit of disarray. I think it's got a bit ugly and, you know, we'll kick less goals now and the full forwards don't kick goals as well as what they should. Our field passing is not as good as either side of the body. I think it should be better. So I'm looking at different aspects of how do we clean the game up a little bit and reshape it for people uh, and other countries to get to like it a bit better than than soccer gridiron and, and maybe rugby or rugby league. You know, so it's, it's like you know it's like a different menu if you like uh, pasta or you like um, steak or fish. Or, to me, it's about a menu, and uh, I think we can get a better menu in a, in a, our game. Will that be your greatest legacy? If it comes about, do you think? Oh, I wouldn't have thought so. I don't know what I mean. That won't ever come about. I just, I'm a dreamer, you know, so a lot of dreams don't, need, don't even get on the field, some of the dreams I have. But the deal in the end is you keep trying. Well, what are you most proud of in your whole life so far? Hmm. I'm very happy that we put a AFL Sports Ready traineeship in, which is, a, you know, we, we got through a dollar surcharge at every finals ticket since the early 1990s. So we've got about 16,000 kids have got a job through that scheme, AFL Sports Ready, and um, that's pretty powerful. You know, that It's got nothing to do with footy, but we collect some half a million or 600,000, whatever it is for the year for the final series. So every ticket in a final series, I think a dollar goes off it onto a kid's job. I think that's probably one of the best things I've enjoyed doing, and it's there forever. Never to be changed. Beautiful. Both governments finally liked it. <laughs> That's very hard to do. <laughs> so anyway, look, it was great. And we did it with uh, Bill Kelty and Simon Crean and the late Ron Evans and um, and um, Lindsay Fox, those sort of guys got together and thought, yeah, we can get this. This is not a bad deal. And every year about six, probably 600 kids get a, girls and boys, obviously, get, um, I think it's split down the middle about half, you know, the, 16,000, and uh, about 2,000 of those uh, Indigenous boys and girls uh, get traineeships. Now, yeah, I'd probably say it's about the best thing I've enjoyed watching. Obviously, I'm a patron of it now and keep an eye on it and make sure things are going well. But, you know, uh, it's good. You can do something, put back something into society other than just being a damn footy coach and a football player. Well, I, I look, I think it's a great initiative because every single one of those kids will know where that came <clears> from and, and hopefully we'll want to give back, you know, to reinvest and, and uh, that, that'll pay itself forward and you've got that compounding interest effect, I suppose. And from, from a political point of view, Kevin, uh, I'll, I'll throw a challenging one at you. If you were the, the, the overriding Prime Minister of the country with full veto rights, what would you do in the world today? Probably not listen to many other countries at the moment. We haven't got many great leaders around the world at the present time. Um, 
I, look, I think we, 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 for a 25 million population and country, uh, it's very demanding because, you know, it's a huge island, Australia. It's about as big as America and as large as um, Europe. Uh, without the population, our taxes are very you know, awkward because we've got a heavy infrastructure. And I agree that um, the both, both um, parties uh, need to reinvest, in particular more so now than ever, because uh, last time we had a recession, we need to really reinvest our um, our superannuation, uh, superannuation money uh, into our own countries um, probably more than ever, particularly after this COVID-19. So... I think we, we've got to make sure that we get that right uh, first off immediately as soon as we are back on deck and, you know, try to fix up what, what is basically a flu out of China, if you could say that. Um, and I, they, people call it COVID-19. I don't have anything to do with that because that's somebody's name that said that's what it is. But really, it's the second time out of China that we've had one of these diseases. And uh, I think SARS was the other one about a decade ago so that's very con- you know that's concerning because a lot of people have died you know around the world you know, where 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 numbers here in australia are probably in the top five or ten anywhere in the world out of populations of 25 plus you know millions so our country's been very very good but obviously it's hurt us economically because to keep that health somewhere stabilized and in particular where i live in victoria it's been probably more destabilised than anybody, but we seem to be getting on top of that, so that's good. So back into your, into your question of uh, what would you do, and, you know, to me it's it's about sort of find out what needs to be done and, and then vote the right way as a country, you know. And, of course, uh, you know, I mean, <clears throat> 75 years ago we, we actually stopped Japan coming into our country after the bombing of, obviously, Darwin. And um, I found it extremely incredible that we sold the Port of Darwin to China. Now, I find that it's just a lack of common sense and would be very disturbing to many Australians. And you'd like to know just technically, or how could that happen? Um, and I know that, you know, it's a political commentary pop perhaps, but I just don't have a bar with that at all, you know. And, uh, and I specifically love to know, if I was Prime Minister, I'd love to know exactly every development and financial agreement with other countries so to make sure that you know under the australian population's noses and we're not selling our country out we do need investment there's no problem with that most countries do but i think we need um, a controlled wise investment so that's what i'll be looking at more internally than externally and if it's externally who's who's wanting to get hold of the land mass of australia I mean, you know, like, you know, like the Americans rolling into uh, probably California when the Spanish had it. <clears throat> you go back on the history of that, you know. So, look, it's, um, yeah, it's an amazing country, Australia. We've got a wealth of uh, raw material. I speak to many of the mining groups. So I fly over to Perth and head up into the Pilbara and, um, and uh, speak to many of the workers there. And um, so I've been to just about most of the mines talking, and I really enjoy that because you are very close to the working people that have helped run the country's finances. Um, and I've enjoyed that learning experience. Well, you, you've you lived a, an extraordinary life by anyone's count, Kevin, and, and I'm sure life has not been without its challenges. And we spoke offline regarding 
the pregnancy challenges that my fiance and I had uh, with regards to some miscarriages and and even a uh, a life threatening ectopic pregnancy that happened. I know there's been some challenges in your life over the course of your many years. What are some of the the areas that you've struggled with the most? Oh well, I um, oh struggle with most uh, in regard to um, uh, if, you, if you looked at different areas. Well, early doors, um, you'd have to. Or oh, my dad died very young, uh, fifty years of age, very young. Of course, when you when you're sort of sixteen or seventeen, you think. Your dad's old. I'm 72, and I think I'm still damn young. You know, so it's a, it's a, your head space changes uh, as uh, as you live your life. Uh, that was early doors. Uh, very frustrating, annoying with that. Obviously, um, I got married later, more than earlier. So I got married in my 30s. Um, my sister lost a baby at birth, which is uh, was shattering for her. My older sister. Uh, then my other sister lost uh, a baby girl at two and a half with a disease just floating in the air and the, and the baby died, a young child died. And, of course, my own daughter, well, Geraldine and I have miscarriages. We had two miscarriages. And then uh, my youngest daughter, Jessica, they lost a bub uh, after about 25, 26 weeks. So they're the differences that make footy just park it, forget about it. And um, I've had many players and their wives and girlfriends go through difficult periods um, because everybody thinks you're just a footy coach, you know. Uh, they don't think you're a human being and um, because they see you just out in the TV set, you know, ranting and raving and trying to win a game when it's you know, mucked it up or whatever. I don't see the actual um, aspect of it. So in, in our garden, I've got a beautiful garden here because uh, – you know, I always learned that if you're going to do something that you like, then I'll – so I bought an acre when I retired of playing and uh, I make my own little uh, botanic gardens and, and every one of my grandkids has a garden or a tree named after them. And um, the young girl, uh, obviously, uh, Maisie, that Jessica lost, um, we had our funeral and we, we went through uh, naming uh, Maisie uh, because uh, that's the grandmother's name, so we did that. And we, we look, we did the best we could in the circumstances to support Jess and John. And I think in the end, um, yes, yeah, so I've got a beautiful little garden there, Maisie's garden. I've got you know Ruby and uh, you know Oscar's trees, and and I got the Cabbage Patch Kids, the boys, you know Oscar and and to- uh, sorry. Tom and Ollie, they got their garden down there. And I've got my other granddaughter, Charlotte's Pass. So I've got all beautiful flowers going through there because she's the oldest and, you know, she'll pick it up quick. That it's a pretty little area for her when she comes out here. So everybody's got a piece of the property, okay? And and then, uh, of course, um, yeah, it makes you feel better inside. Well, I wasn't expecting that, Kevin. I, and thank you for sharing that, by the way. I think the power of, of you know, you talking about that will, will really empower people. We had a guest, Ryan Harris, the Australian fast bowler, come on and was very candid about the challenges him and his wife had seven rounds of IVF uh, before they were able to even even get pregnant the first time. And then they were able to yeah. have two kids since. And, uh, you know, he was talking about how blessed he was being in a financial position to be able to afford that. And I, and I suppose... The thing I love about hearing these kind of stories is that, you know, it's so commonplace that the more we share this kind of information, the easier it is for people to deal deal with. And, and I know mental health is very, very big on your radar. 
you've been very open talking about the mental health of the AFL. And, and I want to run something by you that I think you may not have had much or may not have thought about too much with regards to mental health. And it is that I believe, having gone through my own health journey, I really truly believe that the majority of the mental health issues that we are experiencing, not just in, in sport, but in society, are dietary related. And I'm just okay. curious to know whether you've explored that area at all. Look, I, I'll be honest, I haven't. Um, but mental health was something I grew up with. And uh, my grandfather was in charge of the Q Mental Hospital and my father was a male nurse there. And uh, my mother was a nurse and I have a daughter and uh, and three of my aunties were nurses. So we're into and have been in, in the caring factor of life, a lot more in the sheedy, on the sheedy side. And... Um, but look, there are many different aspects of mental health, and um, I have never, honestly, ever thought about the dietary of uh, implications and and of that. But there could be something there, and I don't know. To be honest, it's hard to try to get to know everything that's going around our world and our life today. Obviously, but um, I'll be interested in the outcomes. To be honest, uh, but I think look, the, the areas that I felt. That uh, and how felt even stronger is that you know when we have our men and women come back from the war zones and we don't look after them, I find that absolutely disgraceful. And um, so you know, I do uh, I do a bit of work for uh, fundraising for Bravery Trust in, in the Defence Forces and uh, soldier on when I can in two different areas. Um, I think that. Um, Really, uh, when I get back into full throttle and uh, we've got the game back up and running again, uh, I'll keep knocking on the door with um, helping these uh, organisations to make sure that we, we do look after our, um, our Defence Force people when they come back out of war zones. Uh, not enough read and spoken about what happens over in Afghanistan over the years. Uh, totally different in Vietnam in the First and Second World War and uh, the Korean War. So I, I think they've been sort of just put in the cupboard, and I don't like that. And that's where you get a lot of mental stress too. And um, you know, like having having that relationship. I mean, when when we went and visited my grandparents, it was at the Kew Cottage, uh, the beautiful Victorian home is where my grandfather and mother lived, on the premises there in Kew in in uh, Melbourne. And uh, of course, we thought they owned the whole property because you know, they were only sort of six and eight and ten years of age, but. Um, there were certain areas we were never allowed to go to because of the mental dis disabilities there of, of some people, and um, and that's what I was a ten year old kid, sort of you know, wow, you know, what's that mean? So it was always there, and then he, my grandfather went up and then took over and helped run um, Sunbury Mental Hospital, which is now a university. So it's always been there in the in my mind of when you can help people, help them, you know, and I think that. You know, I've been on the on the, um, Zoom over the last few months with the bushfire people that have been burnt out over from Gippsland right up through the Bega Valley, and I spoke to a group of uh, people in, in Bega that have, you know, got so a long way to go. Homes have been burnt down. People have lost most things. Um, and we're talking about something like, you know, a 1,000 kilometres of highway. And uh, and they're sit, sitting back there with lost most things, many of them, and uh, and they've been smashed by COVID. So we shouldn't forget them either. There'll be a mental stress down there in that 
in that sort of neck of the woods, as we would say in Australia. And uh, so there's a lot to be done. There's a lot to be done to thank the CFA after what they've been able to do and helping. And of course, this is not just Australia. I mean, worldwide, probably, you know, California's got the worst fires they've had in the history of this. They've been, you know. And um, I mean, probably America's only 100 years old than Australia. We're, we're two very young countries, you know. So, um, and the reason they were very, very quickly populated is they brought, they technically, you know, their immigration policies in America at 1900. They brought, I think, 12 million people into America from overseas through Ellis Island in the first 10 years of the 1900s. And that's what really populated their nation quicker than uh, what we've done. So there's a lot of study and history that, you know, you need to do when you're out there um, advising or chatting to people that a lot of other countries have done really well and and found difficulties uh, through all the times of their life, you know, the decades of, of their life as a nation, that is. And uh, and this is a worldwide, I mean, yeah, we talk about 100 years ago, the Spanish flu, 100 years ago, and it decimated, you know, a lot of... Uh, a lot of countries, and in many ways, that First World War, <clears throat> many felt that Germany lost the war because of the Spanish flu. Mm. They just lost so many people that died, not because of the war, but of the flu at that period around that time. So you, you just keep reading and finding out, you know, what we've got to keep our heads above water here and say, okay, now let's, you know, put, get, get back ready to go. We, I'm energising myself ready to when, the you know, the country opens up again that we give each other the support we need to. And that's the most important thing I feel I can do in the latter years of my life. Well, it's, it's, uh, you're right, Kevin. And I think we need, we need more people with, with more energy and, and, you know, the area of, of health and wellbeing is something that's really close to my heart um, with regards to having Mike gone through my own health journey. And, and I've been surrounding myself with people that are far more educated than I on the subject. I'll be really happy to introduce you to some of that content offline um, and to start wrapping your head around it because the, one of the major issues that we are facing as a country mm -hmm. and in the Western world is the scourge of diabetes. And Australia yeah. is on track to spend 100% of its GDP on type 2 diabetes in the year 2039, which is 19 years from now. And especially in the Indigenous uh, populations, they are being decimated by the metabolic dysfunction of type 2 diabetes and the complications that arise from that, they think, you know, um, Alzheimer's is the third diabetes. Um, and all of this is is preventable and reversible in many cases uh, with the change in diet. So happy to take that offline and, and um, share some of that content with you. It's really fascinating. Well, uh, look, I'll be honest, um, we live longer now than ever we've, we've ever had as a, a, a nation. Uh, most people, if you look at the records and the history records of death times, life spans so if you don't take a look at the food we eat and the water and uh, how we live um, and I think we have done reasonably well obviously reasonably well is it female have lived longer than in the history of the whole of Australia we are living longer so and the reason is is we, we've got to keep learning and take take our health as an you mean i often write in an autograph your health should well you know keep smiling and pass them on because happiness is important also 
but I always write all the best in health and happiness. I put health first because if you're dead, well, you can't be happy. <laughs> just, Depending how miserable I'm, I'm you're just saying, I'm trying to make it simplistic, that's all, but all the best in health and happiness. Well, health first. It, yeah, you're, without your health, you, you don't have anything else really. You can't offer anything. You don't have any energy uh, to do yeah. anything. Um, I think I think you're right, Kevin. We have we are living longer, but I think some of the epidemiology when we go right back to the hunter gatherer lives, the, the finding bones of people in their 80s and 90s with full set to teeth, with no fillings, um, proper um, evolved jaw lines from you know eating the right nutrition. And when we compare ourselves to the last couple of hundred years, certainly since the agricultural revolution, when we started introducing grains and things that sometimes actually aren't actually that good for us, um, which I find really interesting. And as a fan of history, like you are, it's really important that we pay attention to what we used to do, you know. Well, they let you out of New Zealand, did they? (laughs) They certainly did. Yeah. Well, I've enjoyed all this, uh, having a chat. And uh, good luck with everything. And that you're doing and obviously connecting the world and connecting Australia and New Zealand through, uh, you know, Zooms, which have become now a way of life a bit. And um, I'll probably do about four a week now. I've done a lot of Zooms lately and it's been a great education for myself and talking to a lot of different, com- you know, uh, companies. And um, and you keep learning it whilst you're sitting in the living room at home looking out over, I've got a beautiful little billabong swimming pool and, very relaxing, and I could be sitting down there at the big pond at the uh, Botanic Gardens, mate, but uh, <laughs> it's my way of enjoying my little castle, okay? Well, yes. Kevin, I just wanted to say a huge thank you on behalf of uh, all our listeners and all our watchers. Uh, I know that off the record you give of yourself tirelessly and you're always putting your hat in the ring to promote some some really important thing and you're not, not demanding... Uh, any money for it so we want to try and get this out as as much as we can to promote and support what you're doing and the initiatives that you're behind as well ladies and gentlemen mr kevin sheedy it's laban ditchburn and i really hope you're enjoying the podcast the reason for this message was this if you have your own podcast or your own youtube channel or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world i want to make something available to you Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com.